Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen, and I'm pleased to announce that she's back, fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, spullen at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. Disclaimer time. This is where I tell everyone to lighten up. It's just a podcast. Trading is like that roller coaster at the amusement park. Thrilling, unpredictable, and potentially stomach-churning. What works for one person might leave another clutching their hat in the wind. Our hosts and guests, they're awesome, knowledgeable, full of insights, but we're not financial advisors. So don't rush to make any investment decisions based solely on our banter. Always consult with a professional or do your own research. Plus, let's face it, we like to have fun, laugh, enjoy the trading ride together. It's all in the name of good podcasting fun. So remember, take it easy, don't bet the farm, and keep your seatbelts on at all times. Thank you for listening. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the inaugural episode of our newest mini-series, Informal Economics for Traders, featuring the informal economist himself, Eric Mason. And to help out with the questions, I've enlisted Vonta Trading's Mr. Banks, so we can add the perspective of a profitable trader to the mix. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Eric, you want to kind of walk us through what we got planned for the the mini-series here? Yeah, absolutely. I certainly won't have as cool of a nickname as Mr. Banks. That's just shadowy and awesome. I love it. Uh, I think it's more Mary Poppins. That's, that's exactly where it came from. Yeah. So uh, no, uh, for the series, I think what we're going to be looking at here is to kind of demystify a lot of uh, economic jargon, economic topics that permeate trading. And it will honestly permeate every aspect of people's lives. I mean, mm-hmm. the beauty thing, the beautiful thing about economics, it's ambivalent. Um, it's everywhere, whether you're buying a car, whether you're, you know, trying to figure out how what what route to take to to your job, or in our case in trading. And the only way to really understand that, and I think we'll cover this a lot in the first uh, episode, is the foundations. But we're gonna start with a strong foundation of what is economics and how does it impact, you know, people's trading decisions. And we're going to explore that and kind of grow it so that, you know, we want to give the tools so you can analyze financial and economic news as it comes down, comes down the pipe. You know, we're looking at several different important rate meetings in the Federal Reserve over the next, uh, over the next year, 18 months. That alone, uh, you know, certainly makes it worthy to discuss economics, but we are coming into an election year. We're coming into kind of a little bit of an interesting volatile period in the stock market with some of these renewal of debt. Um, all these things come together to describe um, trading scenarios, and economics is really the ink that writes trading scenarios in a lot of cases. Um, so I think we're gonna have a lot of fun doing this. This was this was a hundred percent Kyle's idea. So he please send all your hate mail to him for listening to, to me. Uh, but aside that, I mean, it, we're hoping uh, to do a lot of Q and A. We're hoping to do you know answer questions directly. Uh, as an economist, I think my job, I'm not a smart person. I'm just a translator, except I'm translating a bunch of stuff a lot of people thought of who were a lot smarter than me a long time ago. I've been applying it to today. So questions are good. Generally, just yelling at me is always a positive way to elicit a response, but you know, it's going to be an informal discussion. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if anybody is listening along who has questions, comments, or does want to just share something with us, you can send us messages either by Discord or you can email us at bandoftraderspodcast at gmail.com or you can uh, shoot us a message on Twitter. Um, we'll have links for all that stuff in the show notes, but uh, I think... After that fantastic introduction, why don't we just give you the microphone and let's kick back and learn some shit. Yeah, I mean, first off, kicking off, I'm on Twitter too, um, and I use it professionally, so feel free to tweet horrible things at me because I can't respond. (laughs) 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 Jump into that cesspool with me. (laughs) Um, Am I following you on Twitter? I I hope not. It's horrible. I think I I did. Okay, I think I got it. Um, Yeah, yeah, feel free to talk smack to me on (laughs) On Twitter, X, whatever we're calling it now, it's great. Yeah, it's don't Twitter. make your Twitter professional. Like, don't, don't, don't do that. We got a hack on there. Because um, I am. Uh, all right. So, <laughs> so, so we're going to start with the foundational episode. And, uh, you know, economics is kind of is a little weird because where does the foundation of economics start? Um, 
you know, you get, you get a lot of people who say like Wealth of Nations with Adam Smith. You'll get a lot of people who say uh, Rousseau's social contract. And then you'll get a lot of wrong people who will say Karl Marx and Das Capital. Because you're incorrect if you think any of that should ever be applied to make any sort of decision. Um, when you have to pawn your pants and rely on aristocratic money to make your point about not needing to pawn your pants and rely on aristocratic money, you're inherently a fraud. Um, God, all right. So we're just going to stop real crappy the first two minutes. Let's, let's piss everybody off. Um, all right. So uh, I think the best the best place to start off is kind of... Um, you know, humanizing uh, a lot of the economic jargon that we hear. In economists, we love jargon. We love saying, you ever see that meme of like that really overweight guy who never leaves his basement that just is actually spelled really goofy? Uh, I swear the guy's an economist. Oh, oh. Uh, yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. Like yeah, the, he, the nerdy picture? Yeah, exactly. Just yeah, all over yeah, Reddit. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, I swear the guy's an economist because we get, <laughs> there's something about us that love acronyms and, you know, all that stuff, so. But I think one of the most important things to start off with is kind of discussing what these macroeconomic indicators are. And I'm going to take a step back real quick and talk about what macroeconomics is. So mm -hmm. economics is really split into two fields, uh, microeconomics and macroeconomics. Uh, there are some economists who will argue and say that there's another field called econometrics, which is just like advanced statistics being applied to economics. Uh, that was true probably 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Uh, econometrics is now part of both fields. Macroeconomics is a general discussion of how usually national level policies and initiatives affect the economy broadly. Um, mm -hmm. It's not really specific to markets themselves. When we start discussing markets, we get into microeconomics. I, I teach uh, microeconomics at a university. And one of the hardest things I, I deal with, uh, you know, young people, and I love teaching micro, I love teaching microeconomics. I love being one of the first people these kids get to talk to. Uh, is microeconomics is very uh, rote. It is it's a form of cal it's basically a form of calculus with some philosophy mixed in, and that makes it really easy for people like me who miss the forest and the trees to to, to to really jive into. Macroeconomics is fun because macroeconomics is really a mixture of reality, what you're seeing happen, and this this beautiful kernel speculation that renders all this economic education useless. It, it, it renders it like <laughs> trivial as hell um so before i dive into it i just want to be really clear every economist is biased like we're biased by the schools we belong to and you know kyle and i've had a bunch of conversations over the last year or two um you're a dickensian and, correct yeah exactly okay. so you have a few different schools you have like classicalists those are guys who are like supply and demand that's all that matters uh and they take that and apply it on the national level and that usually results in like a very aggressively libertarian policy where government shouldn't interfere in markets at all um then you have keynesian now to be blunt, Keynesians is the first form of macroeconomics. So, like, classicalism existed. Uh, and that was that big, hey, you know, supply and demand trade-off. But John Maynard Keynes is the first guy to be like, yo, hey, let's look at this as an entire policy setup. Look at this as a package. Mm -hmm. um, now, my school is the contrarian. It's the uh, heterodox to or the, you know, the opposite of Keynesian. I'm an Austrian economist. So that means... Austrian, um, that's right. Yeah, so that means uh, I think all economists have no idea what they're talking about, including me. And we should just observe what the average person does and be like, yo, that dude knows more about his economy than anybody else knows. And if we sum up all those individual transactions, that's the economy as a whole. Um, mm -hmm. So just start this off with uh, me thinking that most of the things I'm going to say, I don't even believe I'm good at. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> so as we kind of branch into that, I just want to be clear that you know, I'm an Austrian. A lot of my opinions, I'm not a pure Austrian, so I'm not somebody who thinks, oh, you know, don't read Hayek and think, it's going to be the same that I'm talking about. I do believe a lot in the man on the spot, but I, I believe in empowering people that if you give the average person education, if somebody, if you're a trader and you're learning and you're a trader and you're, you're examining a company that I can't sit in an ivory tower and tell you you're wrong. I, I actually think that you're being rational by investigating, you know, a company, say you like Boeing a lot and by investigating Boeing and learning, you know, how NCAS systems works and, and stuff like that. And that's going to speculate how you trade on it. That knowledge is valuable and how you accumulate your knowledge makes you more economically efficient. Uh, so Austrian relies a lot on kind of empowering individuals to be their own boss, that, that you don't exist in this superstructure. You don't exist in the structure. The structure is you. And macroeconomics from an Austrian perspective says, okay, all these little actors are making their decisions. Let's just observe it. We're not going to try and direct it. Um, there's a happy medium. Pure Keynesianism, pure Austrianism should never exist. Uh, they, they should be mixed together. Um, <laughs> right. 
So, well, so, so how do you, how do you observe on the small scale like that and collect, like, how do you get that kind of data set in order to actually analyze it and apply it to the whole? Yeah. So where a lot of like my data and statistics come from, especially uh, when we're you know having conversations like this, is the Federal Reserve Economic Database is a pretty mm-hmm. good homogenizer of data. And we're looking for a lot of data by proxy. Um, that's the thing about macroeconomics. They're very hard to observe uh, directly. So what we have to do is figure out proxy. So if we're curious about people's you know propensity to purchase a vehicle, what we'll look at is how the prices of vehicles change over time relative to some standard vehicle. Uh, or we'll look at like how much somebody's willing to pay for a square footage of a home, like one individual square foot, mm-hmm. and then apply it over the economy as a whole. Now, we can take that into the, tra- the trading world. And one of the ways we do that is we look at something like the, Magn- the Magnificent Seven or something. And we see, well, a financial economy. I'd say actually if somebody who's more astute in finance than me, uh, I really shouldn't say that I'm a CFO. I really should, I should be selling myself better. Uh, sorry. Just had a, had a moment of realization. Um, <laughs> so we should really be looking – a trader can take that and say, how, how is the market trading versus the information they know? So, and that doesn't mean insider information or something like that. The, the market homogenizes, homogenizes information and, and markets are incredibly efficient at information gathering. But how a trader breaks off from that can be using this proxy economic data. So if you think, in, like, if you're somebody who wants to really heavily invest in, say, hydrocarbons, coming to understand, you know, what's going on with Venezuela and Ghana in uh, Essequibo, Okay, hey, you know, Essequibo has about sixty percent of the oil, you know, sixty percent of this massive oil reserve that's just been found. And you're speculating on oil prices, and you know, Venezuela's like, hey, we just voted to annex this. Well, what does that mean for oil prices down there? Well, somebody may say, oh, that's really bad. You know, that instability in government contracts is a bad thing. But when they make oil more valuable, because you just reduced and assumed supply, so that may actually make somebody take a bull position where a lot of people may be more hawkish on oil because hawkish, you know, instability leads to hawkish and, and bearish scenarios. Um, and that's on individual research. So a lot of macroeconomics is taking that data that we'll see from like the Federal Reserve Economic Database, Bureau of Labor Statistics, the IMF, and all that, those data sets, but then applying like a good, robust understanding of everything from like geopolitics to even occasionally like science will work in there. Like helium is, we're having a hard time getting helium. Well, yeah. helium, you need to make fiber optics. You, you get fiber optics need to be made in a pure helium environment. And it's like, oh, what is it? What does that mean? Does that mean, oh, now that we're seeing declines in helium, does that mean, uh, you know, fiber optic companies, You do you bet on the companies that make fiber optics being able to charge more? We call that PPI, producer price index, which is another metric on Fred. Mm-hmm. Or are we like, do we become really, do we become really bearish on stock, like, you know, Xfinity and other stocks like that, since their prices are going to go up, but, you know, pressure from streaming services are going to suppress their ability to, to fluctuate upwards. And that's where macroeconomics becomes useful to trader. Macro, most traders I know love talking about macroeconomics. They're usually like wicked well-versed in it. Like I'll tell you, like they're way more well-versed in the general po- uh, population because they like this discussion. Nobody gets into trading because they're boring. Like, like, <laughs> right, like, exactly. Like, nobody gets into trading because, you know, they wake up every day and want to eat the same Cheerios. Like they get in there because they like having panic attacks and drinking too much coffee. Um, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. Yeah, as, as a pound at a duck of donuts at eight o'clock. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the true New England air, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think one of the things I'd like to lead off, uh, you know, Kyle and Mister Banks, is uh, talk about GDP. Uh, GDP is a, you know, it's one of those things. The stock market's not the economy, and the economy is not the stock market. But man, GDP makes people feel good. <laughs> it does. No, you know, you don't you don't run and invest when GDP declines. Um, so yeah, I kind of want to start off with the big foundation, that stat we hear all the time, GDP, gross domestic product. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, some of the questions that I get at my job and some of the questions when, you know, when, I, when I go uh, speak engagements and do Q&As, uh, you know, really focus on GDP. And, and I often find it a weird discussion, to be honest with you. Why is that? Because I don't, think, I don't think it matters to the stock market that much. I think it matters if the number's going up or down, but I don't think it matters to individual stocks. Because mm-hmm. I, I ask people this all the time, how often do you think of GDP? Like when the numbers come out, maybe. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> yeah, that or the news when it pops. Right, right. right. You hear it in the news, and who's presenting it to you in the news? Is it is it my is my lanky ass sitting behind the counter? Nope, no, not um, usually. <laughs> no, it's probably like a communications journalist major who's probably like wicked, probably wicked smart and smarter than me. But I'm just guessing they probably never taken an econ course. They see some number go up, and they're like, "Oh, nice." Um, what do you look at more, GDP, or do you look more at your trading account? Probably more at the account. 
Yeah, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's what matters more. That's not irrational. Like GDP is a cool statistic. It makes people feel good about themselves. But what makes up GDP is, you know, is it's consumption, investment, government expenditures, net exports. That's all. That's all it's made up of. Um, And so one of the questions that often gets asked is, um, you know, you want to drive GDP. And what do we do when we want to drive GDP? We we put we will print a bunch of stimulus checks or something like that. That has nothing to do with driving long term GDP growth. Right. All the body of inf- of information, Nobel Prize winning uh, model, solo growth, the solo, uh, Swan solo growth model. Which I feel wicked bad for Doctor Swan. Everybody calls it a solo growth model. And like all kudos to Robert Solo deserves it, but it's the solo Swan model. Like he also thought of this. It's the most important model probably made in the last sixty years. And it's just so much easier to say the word solo. Like this dude, I feel gets completely clipped out of the out of the out of the yeah the, uh, the allure because like nobody wants to say swan um, right. And what that tells us is capital accumulation has to outpace capital depreciation in the economy for it to grow. You need to have more capital coming to your economy than you're losing it. Real simple. If your car keeps breaking down, you can't afford to repair it. You have a shitty car. You have a shitty economy if that's happening too. Yeah, uh, that's a good way of thinking of it. Yeah, yeah. Government expenditure doesn't drive economic growth. Uh, consumption doesn't drive economic growth, um, and net exports. You can get net exports gets a little hinky because yes, it doesn't drive growth, but you need foreign direct investment or FDI into a country and investments a form of capital can drive long term economic growth. So I don't really want to jump in there. Uh, I don't want to fully dismiss net exports, but it's the underlying investment in there that matters. Um, so when you when those stats come out, I always tell people like, no, no, go on Fred, look up what grew. If it was like a three percent growth in, in in capital and investment, banger. That's a that's a good sign. You should, as a trader, if you start seeing investment growing, that's an excellent indicator that the overall economy is, you know, is turning positive. It's a, it's right. a, people unilaterally are pushing more money into the economy. If it's all consumption based, well, you can only spend a dollar once. A bank can invest, you know, with fractional banking. You know, they only need to hold ten percent of their actual liquidity in the United States. That dollar can be spent ten times. Mm-hmm. And then somebody can spend that dollar over and over again. We call that the multiplier effect. So that's really, really strong and robust. So you want to see more investment. If you see the economy grow because of government expenditures, you should run away. You should, you should be terrified <laughs> of the market. If, if it's a four percent GDP growth, and, and of that, you know, it's made up solely of government expenditures, that represents either you're, you're going to have government expenditures has a crowding out effect. Government has to borrow money to spend it. That causes uh, less money to be available in the economy. Uh, so now you can charge higher interest rates because there's less actual number of dollars to be borrowed. Uh, so that can make the bond market. So if you're a trader and you're like, you know, you're kind of feeling uncertain and you see that large government expenditure go up, like we've had in the last couple of years, you might be like, ooh, government bonds might be a good move, might be a good way to balance my portfolio. Instead of holding in cash, let me take that, you know, government backed bonds and start buying those. And that's why we're seeing higher treasury bills right now. So it's these little, you're never going to find, like, you're not going to hear from me. I'm sure, like, Mr. Banks, I should have, Kyle can tell you, like, a way better, like, home run hitter or something like that. Like, you're never going to get a good stock pick from me. I'm the boringest dude in the world when it comes to investment. Uh, what you're going to get is these little kernels, these little jigsaw pieces that you can then put together because you understand what these basic these basics are. Um, and the best way to start there is GDP. Can we go back to the government expenditures then for a second? So, like, are you talking about like even like infrastructure spending? Like, when we go and like do road repairs and like dump a bunch of money into that, that's not good for the economy necessarily. So, it's not whether it's good or bad for the economy; it's whether or not it's as efficient as private investment. So, gotcha. Something like, okay, something like roads, and I've spent about two hundred fifty million dollars on roads in my in my career, my job. It's good <laughs> because yeah. roads have a IRR of about. 1.5%? Maybe. IRR? Yeah, IRR. Did I say, did I say ERA? Right. No, what does that mean, though? Oh, oh sorry. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> internal rate of return. Gotcha. Uh, so basically, take your your time zero, negative, uh, mm. your cash flow out to so your negative, and yeah. then all the, the return. Um, so it's not the market will never build something that's um, you know that's 2% return, 1.5%. That'd be really weird to take on the risk of that. So that's a good example. That's why I'm not a pure Austrian because I'm like, hey, this is a great. We should build roads. We should build airports. We should protect, you know, free navigation of, of, uh, of sea travel. Mm-hmm. So when you see that type of investment going up, that's really good, Cal. So that, that's, a, you know, that's a good call okay. right there. Okay. When you see like large-scale deficit spending for social plan, for social programming. Yeah, like when the stimulus checks are going out during COVID, that kind of yeah. thing. 
Yeah, I got a stimulus check, and I was like, I yeah. worked right through COVID. I had uh, yeah, very here. gainful employment. I was uh-huh. like, why am I, why am I getting this? <laughs> I was like, why I, am I? About the same thing. I still cashed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Because like, but that's that's where like I become uh, that's where I become an Austrian because I'm like, yeah, you should cash it. Mm-hmm. You should. You you're disadvantaged if you don't. Yeah. Um, but you know when you're doing three trillion dollar, two trillion dollar deficits year over year, and you can have deficits are are different. All right, like. A federal deficit, much especially in the U.S., is much different than like your deficit, you know, being being negative on on a, on a margin or, or your personal budget being being negative. Mm-hmm. If you are running up national debt, but it's slower than your GDP growth, and you're pumping it into infrastructure investment, that's a good investment. You're basically borrowing on your money at a lower rate of return. I'm sorry, lower rate of interest than you are getting in the return if your mm-hmm. GDP is growing faster than your uh, than your borrowing costs. I don't think we're seeing that now. <laughs> and by I don't think we're seeing that, I mean like the math is not showing that. This is not brilliant Eric Mason coming up with uh, you know new mathematical formulas. This is a pretty pretty normal fourth grade division. Uh, so <laughs> that can lead government to either have to tax more in the future, or it can lead to uh, you know kind of an interesting scenario where they're they're bo- they're bonding more. And they're just sucking the dollars out of the economy. And just, I mean, because the bond, I, listen, this is a show for traders. Don't get me wrong. But like the bond market's so much bigger. The debt market is just so much bigger than the stock market. It pulls the stock market sometimes. So it's important for traders to understand these kind of like fundamental functions and foundations um, that can, you know, that may be off their radar and they won't, they could end up being on the bad side of a trade because they're not seeing this, you know, this piling up of, you know, of uh, government deficits. That could come in there and pull away some of that marginal return, and it, it honestly hurt some of their risk uh, portfolios. So, like, how does the bond market draw on it like that? Is it just because people it's pulling capital away from stock investments when it becomes more? Yeah, so that's what happens, Kyle. So that's the big thing. It's it's there's a short term and there's a long term. The short term is exactly what you said. It pulls cash out. It pulls liquidity. Uh, you know that really and that can really pinch businesses' ability to operate. Higher interest rates means it's more expensive for the for the business to operate. More expensive mm-hmm. for the business to grow. Because when you're betting on a business, like, you know, you, you're putting that trade in, you don't want the business to stay the same, right? That's not the goal here. You right. want it to grow. Yep. Yeah. And biz- businesses grow the same way an economy grows. Increase capital investment, right? Now, you can increase that capital investment through retained earnings or through going out and getting more partners for it or through bonding. And when the big U.S. government is sucking up all that bonding capacity in the market, that can hurt a business's ability to grow. And then what you end up happening is that if you're a trader and you're speculating on a, on a growth stock, you're like, this company does something awesome. I can't wait to invest in them. Well, they're a higher credit risk profile. So because they're higher credit risk profile, that means they're going to disproportionately feel the impact of government crowding out because their interest rates are going to climb disproportionately higher. Um, right. In macroeconomics, we have something called the ISLM model, which is investment savings slash labor market. So, you could basically come up with something called long-run aggregate supply, which is, again, like I told you, economists love just coming up with acronyms. A lot of acronyms. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed that. Long-run <laughs> aggregate supply is GDP. Wait, okay. Say that again? Long-run aggregate supply, which is what mm-hmm. the investment savings and labor market model has uh, helps you calculate, is is GDP. There's there's literally no, nothing different. I remember, I remember mm-hmm. sitting in class one day just being like, hey, real quick, so why do we call it long-run aggregate supply? And they're like, well, it's the supply of the economy long run. I was like, yeah, but it's GDP. They're like, yes. Okay. Like, but we, we just added another acronym for it. I've never heard for long no run supply. For no reason. <laughs> for no hmm. reason. And I was like, this, this is why people don't like us. Yeah. <laughs> just like, <laughs> I just, I'm just being honest. Here. I just think this is why people don't like us. Uh, yeah. The amount of shit that, gets t- that I, I will take sometimes, and I just love it. Like after I'll do a show or something like that, especially like, um, you know, especially if not even on a podcast, but if I do like a keynote and stuff, and I'll see some of the comments afterwards on the YouTube, mm-hmm. which you should not read. No. Um, just hilarious. I'm like, you know what? I am a piece of shit. I do agree with that. Thing. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, it's uh, so really what di- dictates that is you have one side, which is the investment in savings. So it basically says the more, uh, the higher the interest rates, you drive more investments. So people are like, mm-hmm. like you to save more. Uh, but the higher the interest rate means the less likely somebody is going to pull resources from the savings market to use for capital because right. it has a higher interest rate, right? Um, it costs more to take. 
then there's a labor market. So, you know, every every first Friday of the month, you know, you people like me get way, way, way too excited because we get to see the great we get to see the labor market numbers. And we had we had a great January. I don't know when this is going out, but but uh, <laughs> probably be going out Thursday. Oh, good. OK, good. Yeah. So, yeah. Somebody uh, yeah, it's very. Uh, so <laughs> the labor numbers came in fantastic. I mean, double what was expected. I think we were expecting like a buck, 175,000 new jobs. We got like 355 somewhere. I mean, this will be actually by the time Thursday comes out, they'll probably have already adjusted the numbers. Unemployment was just super low. It's staying low. The, dude, the U.S. economy is wild, man. Like we have the most developed economy in the world. And our labor for our unemployment rates is so low all the time. Like that doesn't happen to developed worlds. It's awesome. Uh, so those numbers are important to, to watch. Can you give an example of like, so what, what's, typical than for other developed nations so you know you're looking like the like the eurozone i don't want you to say the eu uh but you look like the eu plus common market Mm -hmm. if you're under six percent you're considered doing excellent the u.s is in the threes we've been in the threes for a long ass time and on top of that what you know we just talked about unemployment um unemployment rate is there's a misnomer the unemployment rate's number of people unemployed Uh, it's not it's the number of people in the labor force who can't find a job but want one um, right in the labor force right now in the u.s is about 54 percent, 56 percent, and then that changes largely from state to state don't get me wrong uh, we've never really recovered from the 2008 recession uh prior to the 2008 recession we were like upper 50s lower 60s um i don't know if we'll recover i don't really think that i, I think there's an age factor to it also to be honest yes. like people are, are are aging out i think we're seeing like that uh the demographic hump from uh from the boomers from the baby boomers yeah. So I don't like, I don't think a president can fix that. I don't think a president no. can really do anything on the economy, to be honest. Um, but the unemployment rate, so there's, and then there's three types of unemployment. And when you see, if you're somebody who part of your investment strategy is looking at macroeconomic data and you see unemployment move, you know, there's a, there's a methodical way to understand that and make it usable for trading. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first statistic you need to look at if you see unemployment rate is labor force participation rate, right? So if you look at that and it went down 1%, it non, if labor force participation rate goes down 1%, um, that will make unemployment go down, even if the same number of people are working and the same number of people looking for jobs. Um, that's because just the number of people who are in the oh, labor force oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, has sense. dropped. Yes, okay. Yeah. So the next step is to look at there are three types of unemployment, all right, and only one of them matters. So there's functional – There's a uh, yeah, so there's functional over frictional, depending on like where you went to school. Sometimes it's called functional unemployment. Sometimes it's called fi- frictional unemployment. The technical <laughs> book term is frictional unemployment. Uh, but if you read, I just want to like make a point of it that if you read certain publications and you see the word functional unemployment, they're talking about frictional unemployment. I swear somebody like scribbled that word weird one time. If it's my resume, it. it's it's probably fictional employment. <laughs> I like fictional employment. I like that a lot. <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> I like that guy. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> so frictional employment is you don't worry about it. That is well qualified, highly you know highly educated professionals choosing not to work and waiting to select the right job. That's like if a doctor's out of work or a high engineer is out of work. Um, yeah, they're not taking a job at McDonald's just to get a job. They're waiting for something that fits what they're looking for. Exactly, Kyle. Um, then there's uh, structural unemployment. You know, those are individuals whose skill sets no longer uh, applicable for wage generation in the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, that's where a lot of governments come in to retrain people. And they, and they are actually, uh, if you're somebody who's interested in public policy, they can be a quite expensive group to retrain. It's certainly worth the retraining, especially if you look at how young they are. Uh, we are saying with like the modernity of you know computer programming and stuff like that, or I should say computers in the workforce, that's becoming less and less expensive to operate. I mean, you try to train somebody from a typewriter to be a machinist. It's not hard to train somebody who's like, oh, I kind of know Excel to like, oh, here's how like R works or something like that. So right, okay, the gap isn't as big as it used to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, the one that's important, the one that can cause negative GDP growth, that can really spill over into the stock market is cyclical unemployment. Um, and that is comes from the word business cycle. And that's what we're seeing right now in kind of, uh, you know, tech town, we're seeing Silicon Valley, we're seeing the cyclical unemployment where, uh, you know, as these companies who overinflated uh, their staff, especially during the pandemic, are now trying to bleed off some of that staff. Um, that can flood the labor market. When that floods the labor market, wages suppress. And when wages suppress, people spend less money, people invest less. 
And you can start seeing that affecting the underlying value of equities you may hold. So that's what cyclical means? I always I always thought it meant like the seasonals, like the the people who come in to like pick fruit, like, you know, for the summer harvest. Yeah, that, that that's part of cyclical unemployment. Yeah, it's okay. a big, yeah, anything <laughs> yeah. seasonal or cyclical, so, it's uh But even like uh like uh, who like Activision, Microsoft just laid off like nineteen hundred people. So like that would be considered part of that too. That yeah, bucket. and that and that would be a type of cyclical unemployment. That's part of the business cycle of you know, companies rise and fall, rise and fall. Gotcha. Even, yeah. Interesting. Even Jeff Bezos talks about like he doesn't think Amazon will be around in like fifty years just because of business cycles. Um so because of that or he doesn't think he wants to run it for fifty years. And yeah, he can't survive was, without him. <laughs> you often wonder like that, that freaks me out, like how powerful or not say powerful, like how influential certain CEOs are to running their companies, like beyond economics, like that's kind of cool. Like you're that important to the company, but it's like, what does the company do without you? Are you the company or is the company you? Like, it's just right. fascinating to me. Like Musk. Um, yeah. Right. Like how he, <laughs> I won't get in there. <laughs> I like the guy, I like the guy. So, yeah. <laughs> um, no, but it's, it's how these weird kind of like, yeah, you probably slept, you know, most, a lot of kids who probably sleep through my class when I'm, when I'm, I'm doing Econ 201, <laughs> it, it, it's seeing that like kind of underlying interplay that can affect your portfolio and affect how you do trades. Because here, I'm going to give a really boring, overly economic, like what trading is. A successful trade is just being smarter than the other guy you're playing against. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. a game. It's a game. Yeah. It's, it's economics. It's just a game. And you can be smarter than the person you're playing against simply by understanding these, like these, these foundational effects and these, even starting as simple as like these foundational terms. Um, you know, this kind of like, you know, when you brought this idea up, this is like kind of one of the first things I wanted to, to, you know, broach is like, how do we start showing, not showing people? Cause I think a lot of the listeners know this inherently, but how do we give like a roadmap to what to look for? Cause it can seem wicked overwhelming when you start off. Yeah. It just seems really overwhelming. Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen, and I'm pleased to announce that she's back, fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, spullen at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. So maybe we start there then. So we kind of talked about GDP and unemployment rates. Uh, I don't think we've touched on inflation quite yet, but like, um, so with GDP, like the main thing to watch for then is the government expenditures and where the actual money's coming in. Is it being driven from investing or is it being driven from some other factor? And the one thing that we want to see is that people are spending money to purchase assets, right? Or to invest or to save or to... Yeah, and a, another great stat to look at if you want to look at like long-term uh, buyer's confidence or long-term um, investment, uh, not just investment, but long-term value accumulation mm-hmm. is something called durable goods. So um, it's a wicked popular data series on Fred. 
And what a durable good is, it's a good that is going to last longer than a year. So this sounds really goofy, and but this is honestly why like, I love Austrian economics. When people, people who are very you know bullish on the market and people are, you know, feel good about their back wallet, they buy refrigerators, they buy dishwashers, you know, they buy stoves, they don't because they think their you know future income, which people spend based on their future income, not how much money they have now, but how much money they have they're gonna have in the future. If you're going out and buying that new frigidaire dishwasher, you're probably feeling like your financial situation is pretty solid, which means you're gonna be more active to, you know, if you're investing in company, say you're investing in a retail or uh, mm-hmm. company, they're gonna be more that means a larger portion of the population is gonna be more interested in engaging with that stock with that company that you own a stock in or you're taking a position in um, so durable goods is another great statistic to follow I, i'm a huge fan of durable goods um, if you're looking for you know i brought up bonds earlier and we talked mm-hmm. about government expenditures and stuff uh, there's a data series called hqm or high quality market uh, bonds hqm bonds and they have at the one two three uh one two five ten and twenty i think they even 30 years now that's all data series so if you're looking at that effect and you're trying to gauge it, if you start seeing some of those rates really start skyrocketing, and then you're looking at government expenditure at the same time, you're like, ooh, there's a wave coming. You might want to, like, don't invest in that bond. Don't, <laughs> like, if you invest in that bond today and rates going up, your bond's going to lose value on paper. Uh, so, yeah, there's all these, like, little little interesting data series that we can, we can really leverage that are outside just looking at traditional stock prices that paint the picture on why these stock prices are moving and where they may move in the future. So okay, okay, okay. Yeah, that's uh, quite a bit of information here. So yeah, oh, sorry, I was just going to ask you. Mike, no, that's if you fine. Had any questions? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I feel I feel like I'm back in uh, you know back in class. I'm taking notes over here. Um, I know, right? <laughs> scary. Don't take notes. No, but 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 it's interesting because you know when you look at like last spring with all of the you know bank failures and stuff like that, um, it's it's hard to believe that a lot of these banks kind of fell. You know. I guess, victim to that, especially looking at the bottom line with where bonds were, you know, and, 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 and especially where rates were at that time. I mean, we, we dropped, I think it was like two, it was a two, 3% just on the fed funds to go to zero basically during COVID. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and then just after that, I mean, it just seems like everyone just kind of missed the boat on exactly where rates were going to go in the future. Um, and I, and, and, and you're starting to see it now. I mean, I, I just saw another bank was having trouble last week. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's super intriguing. Just, you know, your kind of view of it. And I never even thought about looking at like durable goods and stuff like that as, as, as like an indicator. Yeah. I mean, the bank, the bank failings were interesting. They were weird because there were asset sheets. The asset sheets were strong. They were yeah. just all in liquid. Mr. Banks, you hit it right on the head. All these guys were, were loving these low rates and that renewal series. And then they were like, they, they end up buying these really heavy assets because they were like, you know, really, Ill, Ill, you know, illiquid assets because they were like, oh, money's going to be cheap forever. It's going to be cheap forever, cheap forever. And it disappeared. The interest rate went up. Yep. So all their asset values, because it's a, it's a you know, fixed coupon rate, crashed down. And suddenly a bank goes from being, you know, 150% funded, ass, you know, assets to liabilities, you know, assets to, to holdings. And suddenly they're 75% funded. Not because anybody took money and moved it. Because they didn't call the market right. Um, back on uh, December, so it was December 14th of 2021, uh, the CFO for, we sold a pension obligation bond. We sold uh, half a billion bucks. It was one of the largest ones in U.S. history. We sold for 2.62%. Mm-hmm. The market gave us half a billion dollars at 2.62%. And it rates immediately climbed the next month. I looked like Nostradamus. I have, you know, I got calls <laughs> from like people all over the, wow, that was really smart. I, Spoke at the World Finance Forum, had an op-ed in the Hill, all this cool stuff. And I'm sitting there going like, I, I was just like, oh, the rates are low. I I think rates will be higher in the future. <laughs> End of thought process. Um, and, you know, now that half a billion dollars with no risk could be invested in fixed incomes right now and get double the return that I'm paying 2.62% on. Like, it's, it's strange that, like, I, I sit there and go, I wonder, I often wonder, like, when these banks, especially smaller banks, I think when you get to like huge banks like JPM and stuff like that, like there's too many people who know what they're doing where it's just like the intelligence of the masses. I wonder what some of these small banks, and this is where like a lot of traders who do their homework, like their Warren Buffett-esque homework on the, the companies themselves. Uh, I, like, I'd love to see a stat where active, how active traders played that off because I got to believe the, active tra- the well-informed active trader 
probably saw that coming from a mile away. They're like, your your long term asset sheet keeps growing, and we're in a we're position right now. Like mathematically, how I looked at doing our pension obligation bond uh, was, I was like, well, rates are at these all time low. They're economically lows. So what's the percentage rates going to go up? And mathematically, it means there's a ninety nine plus percent chance rates will go up. They can't go any lower. Mean reversion kind of idea. Yeah. And yeah. People think it's just like brilliant. They look at me like, oh, it's regression discontinuity. Is this uh, would. I mean, I presented to the city council like an RDD regression discontinuity design and a difference of difference model to kind of illustrate what the effects would be. Um, but on top of that, sometimes, you know, economists, we like to make things more wordy and complicated. We like to show up that we took one calculus course in our entire lives. In this case, it was just simple, you know, arithmetic. Like it has to go up. It can't go. It, it, we can't, we're not going to have negative interest rates. We're not Europe. Like the U.S. will never have negative interest rates. It's so illogical. Like, that will destroy the underlying U.S. economy. Uh, not the U.S., the global economy. <laughs> then I'm sitting there going, we can't go any lower, man. Just take it out now. <laughs> like, right. And, you know, it's it saved the city $186 million. And it's like, that's great. That's $186 million I would have paid in, you know, uh, what do you call it? I would have had to pay in, you know, interest expense over, over that time. Or, you know, in most cases, probably underperformance. Uh, like, if the pension fund underperforms, cities have to pay, have to, put money in to make up that performance shortfall. Mm-hmm. But because we took all the money up front or we borrowed all the money and put it in up front, like those performance shortfall markers like don't occur anymore because you incurred that cost when you issued the bond. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I mean like a part of me is like, I, I made the joke like, Hey, I'm not, I'm a very boring trader and I certainly am. Uh, but all this stuff I'm talking about is not, I'm not just talking about theoretically. Like these are things that we use in decision-making every day. Uh, I use in decision-making every day. I just, don't have my pension fund in options. God, I hope I don't actually. I gotta check that. I'm gonna call my advisor. <laughs> so it's not anybody listening. It's not <laughs> very properly invested with Prim and yep. Makita, who are excellent. Like, throw that out there. <laughs> so um, we've talked quite a bit about like some of these different indicators, like GDP and unemployment rates. Like, so what are some of the other ones that maybe uh, we as traders should be a little more versed in, or should pay a little more attention to? Yeah, one of the one of the ones I I, I really really like is um, kind of like that next level of statistics, and I kind of touched on it a little bit when I was uh, mentioning like high quality market bonds. I really think following the bar, the bond market is you know really important way to keep looking at this. Um, but you know bond markets bond markets are a little strange uh, because everybody talks about bond markets as um, they kind of look at them as static, like bonds don't change and. Even like my specialty is municipal debt. I've done about two billion dollars worth of municipal borrowings, and it's they're not bonds trade. Uh, even municipal bonds, the boringest of all bonds that are tax free, they trade um, about once a year. Um, mm-hmm. So even though it's a twenty year bond, it's going to trade thirty or forty times in its life. So if you're looking at data series that have to do with kind of addressing long run, you know, long run potential shortfalls in your strategy I, I really do think that anything involving uh you know keeping an eye on the stock on the bond market can certainly help uh, the other one i always look for is allowance uh for loans and uh lease losses or a l l l another acronym yeah nice. yeah <laughs> what this what this what this what this monitors is how how hawkish or uh i should say like dovish hawkish or dumbish uh banks are mm-hmm. and what banks basically have to they have to show their cards like that's my thing it's like because of government reporting a trader can like go look at what like jpm thinks like you can read through all jpm you want and they're never going to tell you everything and jpm's like was a great partner they were part of our pension obligation bond like jpm's awesome like they are they deserve all like the love they get uh when it comes to like just how smart the people who work there are uh, but you can aggregate all that data because at the end of the day, if you're a trader, you really don't, you shouldn't care what one bank thinks. You should mm-hmm. care, but you should absolutely care what every bank thinks. And what, you know, ALLL allows you to do is see the entire thought of the banking market. So if banks are putting more money on their balance sheet aside, because they think that you that uh, there's going to be more defaults and there's going to be more losses from the money they're, 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 uh, they're lending out. That means there could be an economically turbulent time that's coming ahead. Right. And so that's always one of those really good early indicators. Like, all right, what, you know, kind of like what's going on over there? Um, the other one is real. I'm going to be real basic. I'm going to be a real basic person here. CPI, man. Consumer price index is, yeah, <laughs> consumer price index is, it's just important to follow. 
because it represents I, I yes does it represent how much prices are changing over time absolutely do i think it's one of the worst statistics of all time for measuring price change over time <laughs> yes i do <laughs> um, but does it tell you how people are going to react oh yeah it does yeah it does like when cpi climbs even though most people have no idea what makes up cpi we we could certainly we could certainly talk about that I've tried looking uh, into it before. My eyes started glazing over, but yeah, I've, I've dug I, into it a few times. Yeah, I swear we made that complicated for no good reason. Like, it's like, oh, hey, hey, what's the, oh, it's how prices change over time, but don't count food and gasoline. What? And also, <laughs> rents will be kind of done in a weird, like, delay, too. Oh, yeah. It's like, yeah, I don't want you to count housing, food, and food for your car. It's like, what are we counting? <laughs> expenses 80% of your budget doesn't matter yeah (laughs) Um, no so like you but here's the cool thing and I this is my advice I always give so they do record CPI with all those things included they include CPI for like males outside of your house like if you're an event forget you know if you're a trader and you're gonna invest in restaurant or you want to invest in stocks like uh yum and stuff like that you can actually see how much the price index is changing over time for food dining services outside of a house right. like you get to real and you can even do that in metropolitan statistical areas so if you're a trader who's like do you want i want to start investing like say you want to inv- start a restaurant you can actually look up that exact data for your your msa um but here forget about everything i could like everything with like hard quantitative economics this is gonna be pure macro side stuff on cpi people react to that statistic more passionately than i've ever seen people act for statistic um <laughs> And, and it's fun. And I get it because if somebody tells you something's more expensive, that's going to piss you off, especially if it's something that you like. You don't have an option on having housing or eating or driving a car. Like it just – it sucks to see your money worth less. Like that's a really valid concern. Like we shouldn't dismiss yeah. that. Like they're pissed off for a good reason. And that type of consumer sentiment can bleed over into the stock market. I would argue that it, it does bleed over the stock market 100 out of 100 times. So an investor may be more challenged – um, if they don't know that what that data looks like, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I see these stats all the time. They're like, oh, a car in 1930 compared to today would only be eight thousand dollars. I'm like, I had a great economist uh, professor who oh, I love him. He, he's he's like literally my mentor. We've worked together. Like he's he's awesome. And he said to me one time, he goes, "You can't compare a car in 1930 to a car today because there's literally things that weren't invented in 1930 that are in your car today." Right. And how do you price those in? And I'm like, also, yeah, there's a right. lot of safety factors and other things that weren't required then, like seatbelts and airbags. So I will tell you, my, so my dad has a, so my father's mechanic, his father's mechanic. My family's like mechanics all the way back to when cars were uh, first came about. And so we have a 1930 Model A, and it has nothing in it that my Blazer has, except it has shades and it has curtains in the back. So I was really upset those have, those have gone away. Yeah, I do remember those. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, they're trying to like mimic like the horse-drawn carriage, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I thought that was really cool. That was $800 <laughs> in 1930. And you and can so have it was, any color you wanted as long as it was black, right? As long as it's black. <laughs> uh, though they put, a, they put a pinstripe on this one, so that must, that must have been a fancy one. It's deluxe edition. Also, yes. baller move. Buying in 1930, given the Great Depression, the deluxe version of the Model A, I like, <laughs> like baller move. Like, who was this person? <laughs> so, Rockefeller, um, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, no, so, like, when we talk about inflation over over the long run, it's really actually super difficult to to compare over time. Even and the more advanced technology gets, the harder and harder it is to compare. Comparing 1900 to 1920. For inflation is much easier than comparing 2000, 2020, because they go all the crazy technology. I mean, look at us. We're doing a Zoom call or Riverside, right. We're like podcasting. We're in all different time zones. Like, this is crazy to how more efficient humans are now. Like, if I, was in, if I was in 2000 and I was trying to be like, yeah, I'm going to have this laptop that's hooked up to this, you know, repeating electromagnetic signal that's going to be on this little uh, node inside your house. And I'm going to be able to talk to people on the other side of the country. They'd be like, yeah, that's going to be $90 million. And like, <laughs> I think like, we're doing that now for like pennies a day to yeah. like, be able to produce this stuff. 2000, I was still using an encyclopedia to write reports. So, so, we, so uh, you know, a little, a little color in Eric's personal life. 
uh, growing up, and this should come as no shock to anybody here, uh, that I, I used to just read encyclopedias. I thought they were the most interesting thing. I used to love and reading my, my history book. Oh, right. Like, That's cool. Uh, yeah. Such a nerd. So my, my, uh, my dad, who's like the best dad in the world, he was like, he was really like, oh, I'm not like, he wasn't big on the internet. Uh, guy still has a flip phone. And so <laughs> nice. he just bought the Encyclopedia, Encyclopedia Britannica, like the, the eight disc set. Mm-hmm. And I used to put it in my computer to read through it. <laughs> just like, and I, this, my parents had me tested twice. Uh, both times came back negative. And as my brother always told me, if you get tested twice, that's the same thing as one positive. <laughs> <laughs> that means they didn't believe the results. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, <laughs> I get a second opinion here. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, no, but the, the thing about like techno- technological advancement, and I think there's a real cool parallel here on the trading because what tra- traders are speculative by nature, I believe. And mm-hmm. trust me, you guys disagree with me on that. I'm not saying that's like the end all be all. But I think they're inherently a speculative nature to trading. Yeah. Uh, so if you're somebody who is heavy on the spe- speculation side of trading, it's important to understand that if you're trying to line up that timeline or line up that continuum of advancement, which is what you should be doing if you're trying to speculate, uh, you it's important to remember that you know that spectrum really seems to be increasing in speed. So mm-hmm. taking that trend line from before and just applying it, you know, linearly. Can, has shown to be wrong. I mean, it's shown to be wrong. It's, that's one of the coolest things about capitalism is that capital, capitalism is able to implicitly express a demand before it's explicitly stated. It's able to come up with a car when nobody knew what a car was. It's able to come up with an iPhone before anybody knew what an iPhone because capitalism is a beautiful system that really allows us to you know, combine different ideas and, and wants and create demand that mm. the market can meet at some point. So speculation is actually, I think, super important. Uh but as you're doing it, you know, it's kind of trying to predict, you know, the next car, the next iPhone, which God love you guys. I have no idea how people do that. That is that's far beyond my capabilities. <laughs> um, all right. Well, we're about uh, 50 minutes into it. I think we've covered most of the main topics here. Do we have any uh, questions or any follow-ups that we want to ask here? Thanks. Yeah. Well, I mean, which, which I don't know if we'll dig into it in the future, but you know, like my main question with, with macroeconomics is, like, how do you devise a trading plan for a daily basis? Um, so some of the things, I, you know, talking to different people and like, you know, I, I'm very fortunate to, you know, exist at this intersection of economics and finance. I, that's one of the things I love about my job. Um, I love about my, my academic background. Um, reporting cycles. I always tell people that like, yeah, in economics, we believe people make decisions based on the information they know. And they try and do that as rationally as they can. So, at, like what I suggest to a lot of people is come up when you are, when you devise a strategy, right. And you're like, do you know what? I'm, I want, I want a certain level of risk factor. I want us to target a certain market. I want to target the tech market, come up with a data release calendar. So as you, you know, explore this and better understand what each statistic matters uh, in your trading life, you know, I'm going to focus on the tech sector. So well, I'm going to look at, you know, you can have durable goods for technology. I'm going to look at unemployment um, rates that have to do with the tech sector. I'm going to look at advanced degrees and stuff okay. like that in the market. You know, how well is somebody with a master's degree doing? Uh, put that on your calendar. And you should be trying to negotiate your trades based on these. We call them discontinuities. or It's like the day before information is released and the day after information is released. The day of information release would be the discontinuity. That would be that line in the middle of the graph. And you should have a strategy. If this number appears above expectation, below expectation, or hits your baseline, what you're expecting, what would you do next? Mm-hmm. And com- once you combine those together over, say, the course of a year with those different information releases, you can work that into your underlying strategy. You can bring economics into your plan by, A, understanding what these un- these underlying statistics mean, these underlying data series, but also building your strategy based on hitting those different marks. I, I-, I equate it to a lot like navigation. You know, you hit your waypoint, do you go left or right? Next waypoint, left or right, and combining those statistics together and combining that analysis and that thought process together, you can really build that into a strategy. Okay, that makes sense. You kind of walked us through something with like Boeing that I think you did kind of similar line of thinking and actually kind of timely because they just had some more issues with 
doors opening up mid-flight and other things. Missing <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, bolts and wings and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, so I'm an aviation nerd. Like, like horrible. Like, my poor wife. But I'm a horrible aviation nerd. Like, I, I've been to Delta and I flew uh, in their, like, full simulator for the 737. Like, oh, cool. You know, like a little cockpit and it moves up and down and stuff like that. I only crashed once, which I was told is bad. I was told that was <laughs> not good. <laughs> <laughs> So, Not supposed to. Cra- it. <laughs> yeah, crashing once is really a kinder. Um, so it beca- so one of the ways, and uh, I think we talked about this maybe like a year or so ago. Um, one of the ways I've applied this cards on the table, and I'm happy to share. I have an Excel sheet with this in here. Obviously, it's not trag advice. What I went back and what I went back and did was I looked at every single Boeing incident over the last uh, 30 years. I think it was like the last 30 years maybe lost like 24 years or something like that. Mm-hmm. And every time there was an accident, I ran an RDD, uh, which regression discontinuity design. It's the most advanced version of econometric analysis we have that still has a hypothesis test, which is a really fancy way of saying we know whether or not the effects were real. And what I found is that after every Boeing incident, the stock price went up. Um, it would come down, people would overreact, and then people would outbind the market and would go back up. It actually just happened with that. Um, and, you know, there's two ways to take this approach. You can take the pure mathematical trading approach, which is what I recommend. And then you can go way off, uh, what I, uh, way, way, way off your normal, you know, what any normal rational person with, you know, free time should do, which is <laughs> like what I did, which is like, it's not just the stock and analyzing it, but it's about analyzing the underlying what what's going on with these planes. And at the end of the day, like, first off, the fact that a plane lost its plug is crazy, and it landed is amazing. That's like, right? Yeah. Um, funnier story is that that version of the Max is super uncommon in the U.S. because the the reason that door plug exists is because you need to have like you know the plane rolls off the factory line and needs to have a certain number of doors in there because you need to be able to the uh, FAA says you have to be able to evacuate the entire plane within ninety seconds. Um, a lot of these planes have less seats on them or it's like the shorter series, like the eight series. And there's not enough people on there to justify an X set of doors, but you're not going to change the whole production process of these super advanced aircraft. So you just put a door plug in and it should be fine. Except when like you have like bad bolts, <laughs> <It's> <laughs> to that. Uh, the same thing with what happened with the MCAS system in, uh, in Boeing's plane. In, in, uh, when we had the Boeing, the Boeing crash. So, um, that system, which so give, give me if it's okay, just like ninety second explanation on why <laughs> Max Boeing Maxes were falling out of the sky. So uh, the FAA for certain aircraft types allow self certification for safety, and that sounds really crazy. Like, why would you allow that? It's because planes make can make these small one or two percent changes and have massive efficiency gains. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, so what Boeing, if you look at the Max, so Boeing seven thirty seven has been around since sixties. All right, you had the Boeing dash two hundred series. Um, you know, great planes. Some of them are still flying as freighters. I mean, really robust planes. Um, in order for a plane to get more efficient, you, it, it, I mean, planes have a certain uh, maximum efficiency they can do, right? Because a plane can't fly really fast. If a plane starts flying fast in like 650 miles an hour, it enters this thing called transonic flight and it becomes really high turbulent. You actually lose uh, a lot of fuel efficiency because of the way the wings go up a lot and down. more friction and other things too. Yeah, exactly. Um, because what you start seeing is like little points on the plane uh, along the plane's wing will start uh, experiencing supersonic flight. Or sorry, not supersonic flight, but supersonic airflow. Oh. Um, that creates like a, a wobble effect. Um, so how do you, so planes have actually been getting slower since the 60s flying. Like the, you know, MD-8 was far faster than you know pretty much anything flying today. So you need to get these efficiency gains and fuel savings, right? Um, you can't get there faster. You got to get there more efficiently. Um so what do you do? You come up with these things called high-bypass engines. So if you look at that giant fan that's on a Boeing, uh, it's like the engine mm-hmm. cowling on a Boeing, uh, you'll see it's a huge fan right there, right? All right, only the, a very small part in the middle is the actual jet engine, and all the other air flows around it. Um, and what we basically that's called your bypass ratio. The, for every you know one cubic foot of air, a cubic meter of air that goes through the engine, how many cubic meters of air go around it? Um, the new Boeing engines um, on the Max series, I think it's like an 11 to 1, 15 to 1, Super efficient, right? Um, now, if you look at uh, Boeing seven thirty seven dash eight hundred, all right, so like the, the NG models, the new the new generation models, um, you'll see they're very circular, all right, the, where the engine sits. And if you look at the Max series, you'll see it's actually flat at the bottom. 
Um, that's because the fan blades are getting so big, you can't even stick them underneath their wings. <laughs> um, yeah. So in order to house that engine, what Boeing had to do was to push the engine slightly further in the wing. Now, mm-hmm. if you think of a plane's perfectly balanced, you move some weight forward, your nose goes down. So they had this thing called the MCAS system. And what the MCAS system did is it basically had a sensor on the wing that if the angle of attack or, you know, the what direction the plane's flying relative to its axis um, started going down too negative, the plane would correct it. Correct. Mm-hmm. It would correct it. All right. Um, now, Boeing, and this is where Boeing did something that, you know, I don't think was the smartest thing to do. Boeing had one sensor on the plane. All right. But they had the option to have two sensors, one, uh, one on each wing. I think maybe it was like one on the nose, one on one wing uh, as a redundancy. Um, everything in planes is, should, should have, have a redundancy. redundancy. <laughs> yes. Um, so a lot. if you notice, a lot of these plane crashes were Malaysia, Ethiopia, were in you know developing countries where they, they were in the global south. Um, and those airliners only had, only had the base model MCAS. And what was happening is that the plane thought it was falling. So mm-hmm. it kept pushing its nose back up. Boeing had an issue with uh, Boeing's programming had kind of this weird system. And this is where it gets in the gray area. And I think a lot of the investigations were like, could it be overridden? Could it not have been overridden? But if your plane keeps trying to buck you up 20 degrees, you know, that's that's hard for a pilot. I'm not cr- like, yeah, I can yeah. that. That's terrifying. Um, but in the US, every Boeing had both sensors. There was it had the redundancy. That's why this, these accidents happened at Boeing. So after these horrible crashes, a lot a lot of people made a lot of money. If you look at the option books at that time. Because they knew that they were like, mm-hmm. oh, the FAA is going to put the like this is these are going to come back in, going right back in the air, yeah, right back in the air. And that same thing's happening right now with the Max series. The, um, there's not that many of them, so people applied all that negative to the entire Boeing fleet. And the I mean, Boeing seven eighty seven, the Boeing triple seven are, are excellent aircrafts, um, but they applied that to everybody. Hmm. And when they applied that to the whole entire Boeing market, they applied it to every single plane. Smart investors were like, whoa, this is only representing an incredibly small amount percentage of the Boeing fleet. So everybody liquefied their stocks. A lot of those guys did. A lot of option traders came in there. And I looked at the option books and made a ton of money because they were like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I know this market good enough. The, the, those planes don't exist in a large number you, th- they, you think you do. It's like hearing a Ferrari crashed and then selling Honda stock. Uh, yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Yes. Yeah. It, it's... You know, that, it, it, what's funny to me is that the other stories with Boeing, like Boeing 787s, the Dreamliner, one of the best planes ever made, you know, the first, uh, you know, wide body aircraft uh, that's all pretty much all carbon fiber, super light. Some of the, it uses the G9X engine, like excellent, excellent aircraft. It's paints falling off, which is like super bad. I mean, it's not like, not going to make the plane crash, but like there's all this litigation with all these companies about, dude, you're playing, you're your paint's falling off. And I'm like, that's a bigger threat to your to your bottom line if your best selling plane. Boeing a Boeing 737 costs like like 100 million, 120 million. It's something a ridiculous. Seven, yeah, but a 787's like half a billion dollars. Like you, you can you have these like massive companies going into litigation who may go potentially into litigation over over this paint. Um huh. and then there was delays with the new engine, like the Trent 11 engine wasn't available. So like there's like no, that's a threat to the company, but you know, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna lie. Some obscure conversation from a nerd like me about bypass ratios on the GE9X or it's a Trent 1011 does pales in comparison to a fucking door blowing off the side of a plane. Like, like nobody wants to hear Eric talk about like how. To be honest, yeah, uh, that was way okay. more than 90 seconds, by the way. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> Like twelve minute explanation on the history of Boeing in the World War Economic Series. Yeah, but I'm like, just to loop it around, like that's the level of like insider knowledge that it's not just economics teaches you a lot of disciplines to like do that type of research, but it's these little kernels of data and truth that you can find that can give you such an advantage trading. Like it really is. It's wild to me. It's I really. Remember, I, it's really funny to me that when I came into this, I thought we were going to be learning about how to look at the big picture. But really, what it sounds like what we're doing is we're taking the big picture that everyone's overreacting to, and we're digging into the real numbers to try to find what certain aspect of that is causing the big picture to look the way it does. Yeah, no, and that's the beauty of economics. It's the you know it's a you know eternal search for truth um, mm-hmm. in a very goofy manner. If it's coming from me, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks. You got any other questions here? No, I no, I just you know I'm 
you know, of these other, you know, things that we're going to talk about in this series, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited. Uh, oh know. God, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Should I tease one of them before we wrap? Oh, no, go yeah. for it. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, yeah. So let's see. Next time we will be looking at government fiscal policies like taxation and spending, central bank monetary policies like interest rates and money in supply, and how those influence the markets and how traders can interpret these moves. But I think that's probably going to do it for today's episode. So let me first say thank you to everyone joining tonight. Uh, special thanks to the informal economist himself, Eric Mason, for putting this masterclass together. <laughs> you can visit theinformaleconomist.com if you want to see more of his work. And if you have any questions about what's covered today, please send us an email, DM them to us uh, on Twitter or Discord. And we'll make sure that we uh, spend some time answering those in the next installment. Uh, Eric, are there any other resources that people can dig into if they want to look into some of the other concepts discussed today? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, obviously I mentioned the Federal Reserve Economic Database a lot. I think that's a great resource to start if anything we discussed today uh, interests you and you want to work it into your trading portfolio. And, uh, you know, as Kyle said, we're going to really evolve, uh, evolve this even more as we go forward throughout this mini series. Um, the other one is, I, is a book uh, I, I recommend every time we're on a show, but it's particular to a lot of the concepts we've talked about today, which is Nile Ferguson's Ascent of Money. Um, and I also want to recommend um, a free digital book that um, has been out for a long time, but it's actually used in a lot of grad programs called Mixtape. Um, if you just Google Econometrics Mixtape, you're going to find a, everything we talk, I talked about, we talked about today, regression discontinuity design, diff and diff modeling. You're not only going to find a free resource that's a graduate level on it, it also walks you through how to do the math in all these different coding languages. And it's an excellent resource oh, if wow. anything here interested uh, interested you. Um, and aside from uh, the other ways to contact me on my website that Kyle mentioned, uh, my Twitter handle is Eric James Mason, because apparently I could actually get my entire full name. And like I said, <laughs> feel free to DM me on there, but also feel free to talk mad shit to me because I, I will not be able to respond. <laughs> <laughs> typing out a message right now yeah, right? <laughs> eric you're a bitch yeah, exactly. deep, right. deep voiced asshole stop <laughs> animal from the <laughs> animal from the muppets trying to get economics <laughs> oh god all right we'll, we'll be back soon with another exciting episode but until then please smash that five star rating tell your friends and have a great great day This podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only, does not constitute financial or investment advice, and should not be construed as such. The hosts, guests, and contributors of this podcast are not licensed financial advisors, brokers, or professionals. Any trading or investment decisions made based on the content of this podcast are solely at the listener's discretion and risk. Trading and investing in financial markets carry inherent risks and past performance is not indicative of future results. Listeners should conduct their own research and seek advice from qualified financial professionals before making any financial decisions. The views, opinions, and information shared in this podcast are those of the individual contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views or policies of the podcast creators or associated organizations. Produced by China Shop Productions.